0: Flushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Some people, you know, have a very dry sense of humor, some people have a more gaudy sense of humor, but in the end, it's about the connection between you and the person you're dealing with, getting them on your wavelength so that they actually feel more relaxed. Are you more likely to sell to someone who uh, is feeling relaxed than someone who's feeling tense? and so? Well, of course you are.
1: Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport and entertainment who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you. Humorology is the study of how humor can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is one of the most influential agents and managers in all of sport and entertainment. He has represented four English captains across multiple sports and his collection of clients includes some of the biggest names in sport and television, including Gary Lineker, David Gower, Mike Atherton, and Brian Moore, just to name a few. His influence on modern-day football is undeniable, having been involved in the careers of players like David Beckham, Alan Shearer, Peter Shilton and Michael Owen. He has made transfers happen, created captivating careers for his clients and even spent a short time as the chairman of his club, Leicester City. When he isn't representing some of the nation's most notable stars, you can find him writing captivating columns in The New Statesman or giving his insights on the behind-the-scenes business of sport and entertainment. Now, we're sincerely hoping that the experience of doing this interview will rank a close second to his beloved Leicester City winning the Premiership. John Holmes, welcome to the Humorology Podcast.
2: Thank you, Paul.
1: Good. Is it is it already ranking a close second to uh, Leicester winning the
2: Premiership? You want me to be honest, don't you?
1: <laughs> no, I don't, actually.
2: <laughs> yes, then. <laughs>
1: um, I'd like to go back to the beginning John um, I know your father was a big sports fan and encouraged you uh, to love sport was he humorous and was humor uh, important and valued in your family
2: Absolutely yeah he was a massive fan of comedians I think you know he was a, he was a great fan of Tony Hancock uh, I think it was him that took me into Tony Hancock he also Uh, through his father, who also was uh, a fan of comedians and so on, took me into Groucher, Marx, Will Hay, Sid Field, lots of the old comedians. Um, And, yeah, watching comedy programmes on television together, I suppose, uh, gave me my... uh, love of television. Um, My father was born in 1923, so it doesn't take much to work out that he was 16 years old when the war broke out. He spent his 21st birthday on the Hill at Casino. uh, And he would never talk about the war, of course, uh, because they didn't. They especially didn't talk about Casino, which will lead us into maybe another tale later, but... um, Uh, He came out of the army aged 22 and tried to play sport uh, because he'd been pretty good as a uh, cricketer, footballer and so on before the war. Not good enough to be professional, but good enough to be a decent amateur. But of course, he was definitely into playing sport at that point and watching sport. He watched Leicester City. His idol was a man called Sepp Smith. My father was at the Wiggiston School in Leicester uh, and was a classmate of Richard Attenborough. And um, always uh, told me that Richard Attenborough, Dickie Darling, was a Mm -hmm. massive sports fan. And uh, he too had uh, watched Leicester City at that era and listed Sepp Smith as amongst his greatest um, uh, heroes. The difference was that uh, that Dicky wasn't a sportsman, self-admitted hopeless, and my father remembers the um, having to leave Dickie out of the a very important cricket team at school because he just wasn't good enough, and. Um, Uh, And, you know, that was one of his bad decisions. He'd probably got more cinema tickets or uh, parts in films, wouldn't he, if he'd have have put him in the team. And years later, I put them back together again at, uh, at a ceremony in Leicester, when Gary Lineker got his freedom of the city. Richard Attenborough was there. They hadn't seen each other since the war, since before the war. So that was extraordinary. Yeah, he was a massive sports fan. He took me uh, to football matches, cricket matches from an early age and um, made me laugh on television or helped me laugh on television at Tony Hancock and stuff like that And, um, and also radio comedy as well.
1: So what was the young John Holmes actually like then? Was he funny? Was he cheeky? Did he already have an entrepreneurial flair?
2: Yeah, probably was. I was badly behaved mostly. I think the interesting bit is that my father's generation had, you know, in many ways their youth was taken away from them by the war. uh, And they wanted their kids to have a good time. They wanted to have a better time than them. And uh, so, he generally wanted me to have, enjoy the sort of sports experiences and everything else that had been denied him uh, because of whatever. Uh, and I was fortunate, I was born in 1950. Uh, the 1950s didn't have much, there wasn't much money about. And then as someone once said, you know, 1963 came about, I became a teenager, the Beatles arrived, Um, Sex and the Beatles and Money arrived about the same time. And you got the swinging sixties. I was a bit young for the swinging sixties, but it was an era of growth of television, of sport and so on. And they became my two big sort of obsessions. And my father who'd who'd worked in the rag trade, his father had started a business during the second world war bizarrely, because his father had been just too young to work uh, to, uh, sorry, fight in the first world war. He then came, uh, he then experienced the twenties and thirties and what happened of course, then was the soldiers came back and didn't get jobs and there was a depression. So my grandfather decided he would do all the non-Orthodox things. So during the war, he bought a big house when nobody uh, was buying big houses. He started a business that his children could work in when they came back for the war, my father being his eldest son. Uh, and And he bought a chemist shop in Folkestone because he got it for nothing because everybody thought Folkestone was doomed. Why have we got a chemist shop in Folkestone? And it only later in my life did it occur to me that this was not only the reason for it, but actually it was a stroke of genius and coincided with the other things that my grandfather did. But what my father did, having come out of the the army and gone straight into the family business, sent out with a gown van to sell, coats and dresses to credit traders in the in the Midlands. He didn't want me to have to do that. He wanted me to be able to do what I wanted to do and so on. And what I wanted to do was to write about football. Um, so I wanted to become a journalist and that was where I started. But then I sort of realized quite quickly after going to university, Uh, where I worked uh, on the university newspaper. I quite enjoyed it. I worked in journalism for a bit. I found that the people who worked in local newspapers where you had to work in those days actually hated graduates because they'd not gone to university. And I had a news editor who fancied he was Humphrey Bogart and um, patrolled around the place being actually quite unpleasant to his young staff. And I thought, fuck this for a game of soldiers and um, I was in contact with a uh, a local businessman started his own business and he and I used to he used to take me out for lunch and I talked to him about ideas I got about sport and so on and I'd been heavily influenced by a money program television again that featured Mark McCormack this sounds really brilliant. And that was what I wanted to do. And he said to me, why don't you come and work with me? I'll teach you about financial services and money and you try and build a business in, um, in sport along McCormack's lines, which is what happened.
1: I mean, was Mark McCormack uh, charismatic and uh, was that what drew you to him or did he have humour, you think, or did you think that this is what's missing? He was American, he didn't (laughs)
2: have humour.
1: Well, that's killed our American audience for a start. Yeah, yeah,
2: it has. Yeah, I'm afraid so. He was charismatic, he was very clever. And he, what he did was to discover the connection between sport, television, and, uh, and uh, business, and put the two together and you can make it work. Or put the three together, rather, uh, and you will make it work. And he, of course, he transformed golf that way through taking Arnold Palmer, a player uh, who was the best player in probably in the world at that point, and saying, if you're going to be the best player in the world, you need to play in the world. So let's go over and play in the British Oak which the Americans at that point had, had been boycotting. He came over, I can remember very clearly, Arnold Palmer coming, my dad was a King Golf 8. This guy's coming to play in the, in the open, as we called it. And it was all over the newspapers and so on. And uh, he came over, he finished second the first year, but then he won it for a couple of years on the trot. Golf was started to be televised. They worked out that golf was a good sport to televise because of the great backcloths that you got in terms of the, um, the coastal scenery where the British Open uh, has always uh, been played. Uh, and it came off. And of course, the cameras then were fixed, so they couldn't do it as well as they now do it brilliantly. But it drew audiences and so on. So McCormack started managing the top three golfers because they'd seen what he'd done. The top three were uh, Gary Player, Jack Nicholas, and Arnold Palmer. And he invented this television programme where the big three played various courses around the world. And he sold it, I think, to Shell. Um, and it was a TV series shown around the world. The big three play this course, the big three play that course. Uh, and I thought this was really clever. Um, but McCormack made one fundamental error in in what he said, and his fundamental error was he believed that what happened in America happened in the rest of the world later. It may have been true at that point, but it's it's no longer true, of course. And if you really want to upset Americans, and if you really want to upset your American listeners, you tell them that the World Cup is bigger than the Olympics, They really react badly to that. Uh, And if you really want to get them to react like you've shot their grandmother, you tell them there are more films made in Bollywood than Hollywood, both of which are true.
1: It sounds like that you, uh, your image was to be Mark McCormack with gags and with humour. Uh, as well. That was your image of the future. Would that, would that be fair to say that you, you, you've actually pushed the lighter side of it. You've got the charisma, you've got the, uh, the but you've also added in a level of humour. How does that help you?
2: Uh, in Most situations it does help you, doesn't it? If uh, I will say, there was a boy I knew at school um, who was very lazy. But and he always got away with things. It used to irritate me intensely because he just used to grin and he smiled at people. And, um, you know, I remember this master say his name was Charlie Thompson. Um, and, um, Thompson, have you done your essay? And he just used to grin back, no sir. <laughs> and he got away with it. And I thought, how does he get away with that? And of course it is. It, it, you know, you can disarm people They say the disarming smile and to try and get a smile, to try and get the other guy to grin a bit. It takes them down a bit. It's hard to get crossed with someone who's making you laugh.
1: Well, well so you actually think that it's a state change in a way that, 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 that you can actually, through humour, you can change people's state for the better and then use that.
2: Yeah, you can of course, that you can lighten the mood, you can, uh, if somebody's getting in a a rage, I I remember a colleague of mine, uh, guy I worked with for a time, Tony Stevens, he originally uh, started acting as Beckham's agent and when he met Alex Ferguson, Alex Ferguson, to tell him that did, Alex Ferguson went into a state of rage because he didn't like anyone having any control over any of his players. And um, uh, at the end of it, so listening to this hair-dry treatment, he then looked at him and said, so I take it you're not happy. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, he did, I, I think it maybe brought him down a bit. You do try. And, um, uh, and break people down. Some of the best uh, uh, managers in sport I've seen were also very funny men. Brian Clough w- was a brilliant comedian. Bill shankey had moments of, of great comedy uh, in terms of the way he dealt with people and so on. Uh, and, of course, he gets people going with you and so on.
1: I've heard you describe Brian Clough as the kind of like the Eric Morecambe, uh to, to Peter Taylor's Ernie Wise in that, he seemed to have a natural facility for humour. Did he always use it kindly or was it no. a
2: one-up? Clough was mostly concerned with power, power over people. That was That was his primary concern. If you met him, his idea was, to weigh up where you were in terms of power, how strong you were, how weak you are. And, and he could use humour through to reduce people as well, i.e. take the piss out of them to a degree or uh, build them up. But he was all concerned about his power in relation to them. But he used humour quite cleverly in doing that. So
1: humour can be used for a cruel aspect, as as well as uh, the aspect of, of, you know, lightening the mood. And it's a choice, and it's a choice. Well, but you've always um, talked, I think, about that Brian Clough would have been a success in any field. Um, Do you think that humour is the key to great intelligence and and great nouns, It's just how you use it.
2: I've met some great people who are pretty humorless. Uh, So it's not invariable, uh, but it's a tool, isn't it? It, It's something that you can use. If you're good at it, you can use it. Uh, And I've always found the use of humor quite uh, helpful. Um, I'm not a comedian. I'm not funny. I'm not uh, in, in terms of, uh, I, you know, Jimmy Tarbuck is a friend of mine. He's naturally funny. He can do absolutely anything and he can make you laugh. Um, uh, and he tells stories in a way that completely disarms people and so on. I remember one occasion where I, I, I went to a dinner. Uh, in London, Tarbuck, It was uh, uh, anyway an organisation, and they Tarbuck was the president, and Thatcher was there after she'd been prime minister, and she was she was beginning to get towards um, uh, I think I, I mean a, a state where her brain was uh, she was suffering from early. Dementia, early signs of dementia. Although she was quite old, and Jimmy told a joke about um, um, about uh, going on um, uh, revisiting his honeymoon with his um, with his wife after uh, after forty years, and they they went back to Southport and they took a walk as they'd done on their honeymoon forty years before and. They strolled over the over the sand dunes, and, uh, and, and then he said uh, they made love against a fence, and, um, uh, and um, he said to his wife afterwards, God, that was as good as it was 40 years ago. And she said, yeah, but 40 years ago, the fence wasn't electrified. So, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone reacted like you did. Thatcher never moved a muscle, and I knew at that point, she's maybe gone, you know. Well, uh,
1: we've, we've had William Haig on the podcast and, uh, and he has said categorically um, to us that Margaret Thatcher didn't have a sense of humour. So it could just have been that.
2: Well, it, it could have been. Uh, yeah, he has got a sense of humour and actually he can tell a joke. Um, Boris Johnson gets away with a lot of things because he can't tell a joke. Maybe yeah. Keir Starmer would be more effective. It'd be interesting to hear what Alistair Campbell said about it. If he was seen uh, as a person who could uh, who could tell jokes.
1: Well, according to Talking Alistair... of jokes,
2: I've just been joined by a dog.
1: That's all right. Bring, oh oh Oh, the first yeah. time for a he dog on the podcast.
2: Throw, he wants me to throw his ball. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Otto. This is Otto von Bismarck. Oh, uh, uh,
1: Otto, uh, what's your favourite gag?
2: <laughs> what do you think of it so far? Sorry, uh, I will throw him out. You'll have to suspend at this point. Apologies. Okay. <laughs> Churchill obviously had uh, a great uh, ability with humour uh, and used it in speeches, you know. Irony, those sort of things, some chicken, some neck, you know, one of his uh, uh, famous uh, words and so on. So, uh, and particularly if you go to the House of Commons, if you've ever been there and seen the way it's set up and how they behave at question time, how that comes over in TV, as opposed to, when you see it it, in reality, it is different. Um, And actually it gets quite childish and you sometimes worry about, actually, is this the right way to run a country when there are things that are serious and so on. There's definitely a place for humour and a place where humour isn't appropriate. I think you have to work that out.
1: Yeah, it's interesting the Keir Starmer uh, point because uh, we've we've had, Quite a lot of people from politics, on um, Steve Richards and obviously Alistair and, and everything. And seemingly, uh, I don't know Keir Starmer, but he has got a good sense of humour. I think he's just reticent to actually bring it out because he's terrified of the press jumping on something that could be, you know, humour is very often inappropriate. It's a humour is
2: quick. inappropriate and and. Also, maybe he's playing a canny game in that he's trying to present an opposite. You know, aptly played an opposite to uh, to Churchill in many ways, yet was a very effective prime minister in many ways.
1: Well, you talk about negotiation. Uh, what is the key to negotiation for you in the terms of... Uh, Humour and how it can be used—is it about good cop, bad cop, as you say, or, or what? What is what is the essence
2: of it? Um, There's no one good way. That's the first thing you learn. The idea that something is the answer in negotiation is not true. It's all the circumstance. It's where you are at the time. Um, I've negotiated for a living, as it were, for ages and ages, and sometimes people will say to you, how did you do that? Or how did you do that? And, and uh, how did you get that deal? How do you get that deal? And actually, sometimes good negotiation. Sometimes, did I use humor in it? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, did I sometimes play the hard man? Yeah. Sometimes, did I play the, did I sometimes play the naive? Yeah. But there's no good way to do it it's what's appropriate in the circumstance it's basically looking at the guy the other side of the table and working out how to it is you see clough understood it was about power uh and so on and actually if someone's on your wavelength if they're talking to you and you get a point of contact it it does work and sometimes that involves humor sometimes it doesn't sometimes you're keener to get one step ahead of them. Sometimes you're keen to withhold certain information. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the the best way to do it is to actually be completely open, but it's all about the dynamic of the relationship in order to achieve where you're going.
1: I think that's really interesting because what you have hit on, I think there, whether consciously or unconsciously is that You said negotiation is all about different circumstances, but I think it's about listening, which is what the essence of good humour is, is about listening to what you're getting back and then reacting to it in a way. You're very good at listening. You're very good at gauging what people need at a certain point. And by the way, all the great comedians, I would say are the best listeners but listening doesn't just mean through the ears. It means seeing how people Correct.
2: look. I was gonna say, I'm, I'm often told I'm not actually much very good at listening. Uh, and, and a friend of mine always used to say I was permanently fixed onto broadcast. Um, <laughs> I think it's not only what you hear, it's what you see. You can see in people's eyes, in people's body languages, whether you're getting over to them, you know, are they, sitting like that or are they sitting back and smiling and enjoying it are they smiling because they're laughing at you or are they smiling and uh, and grinning because they're enjoying the conversation so it's watching as much as listening it's sensing the other side of the table where you're going to is it time for a break now or is it time to push on
1: i think that that listening off the top is is the as in psychology the, we would call that listening off the top, whereby true listening is about recognizing how someone looks when they're they're talking to you. Um, are they with you on the journey? I mean, even the simple things like when people want to hear more, the eyebrows go up. When they want to hear less, the eyebrows go down. And you talked about it being instinctive, and I, I think that is. Uh, really useful for our listeners to go that somebody who has done as many brilliant negotiations over the years is instinctive and doesn't just play it one way. Is humour appropriate at this point? Can we shift the way um, somebody's feeling and their state through humour? So. That, I think, is the the crucial thing, and I'm learning a lot from that negotiation stance as well. You
2: say it's instinctive, it's also learned. Uh, You gain through experience, don't you? You try and learn from each new negotiation because you do make mistakes, Uh, and you learn, I won't do that again. You know, one thing I always learnt with negotiation, even if you've got everything you absolutely want and you're bursting to say, yeah, let's do the deal. You should all say, yeah, I think we're there. But before we come to final agreement, I want to go and um, I want to go and talk with my mother, my uh, my wife, my dog. Uh, I want to uh, always give yourself a get out clause. Because once you've got out of that state where the other guy, uh, you have between you maneuvered yourselves into a position where you think you've got a deal, you need to then go.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Have we really got a deal? Have I missed something? And that's so always give yourself time. Now, early on, and especially when I was dealing with, uh, you know, training people to do my job when I was with a larger bit, I found that some of them were desperately anxious. Yeah, we've got a deal. Right, it's brilliant. They went and did the deal. And then they rang me half an hour later and said, Well, oh, we've got you know, we've got a better deal now. And I'd say to them, well, have you 100% agreed with this guy uh, that you were going to do it? Yeah, I have. So I'm going to let him down. I said, no, you must never let him down because if you've 100% agreed, I'm sorry, you will never do a deal with him again if you let him down at this point. So always give yourself a get out clause because you don't know. If somebody else may come along with a better deal in the next 10 minutes, you can't forever string things out. But again, that's a bit of intelligence and, and watching as to can I string this guy on for a little bit longer or is he going to lose his humor and his patience and so on? Um, have I got to sort of bring him down a wee bit? I remember, and it is quite a funny story. Uh, Peter Shilton, we, the first time we did a transfer uh, for him, we moved him from Leicester City to Stoke City. And um, in those days, uh, you know, transfers were done rather quicker and all sorts of arcane rules, like you had to lodge the papers on a Thursday night at Lytham St Anne's. I mean, could you make a more difficult place (laughs) to do it? And... Uh so Leicester and Stoke had agreed a deal. We had to agree personal terms. And most managers assumed that what, what would happen is they would walk into a negotiation, tell the player what he was getting. The player would argue a bit, but then he'd say, well, that's what we pay and that's it, son. And you can't have any advisors and you just do this and we'll look after you. Is there anything else you want? And the player would then meekly say, well... Can have a new car? And he'd say, I'll look after that, just sign there. And that would be the end of it. And then the next day, he'd go and say, what about my new car? And he'd say, fuck off, you've signed. And um, you're playing for me now, son. You're on a three-year contract. Um, And I walked in uh, with Peter. The club, uh, they, they came in as the manager there, the director there, the secretary there, yet the player was expected to go on his own and basically they overpowered him. You can't do this, you can't do that. And I said, well, you know, and Peter backed me up, I'm not gonna sign unless John says it's okay. So we negotiated and we negotiated and it took a long time and they wanted to talk in terms of weeks because these people were paid employees that you only got you know, weekly wage, this was what you got. You were like the mill worker, you know, Um, And we talked in terms of annual salary and we messed about, did all those typical negotiation ploys. If somebody's talking pounds, you say, oh, well, can we denominate that in dollars? And then now you could say euros and so on and so on. So I've done that loads of times. It used to be, you used to have a sheet with all the currencies written if you were negotiating a foreign transfer. So you could mess about with the numbers a wee bit. And so, but anyway, to cut a long story short, this negotiation went on a long time. And um, the uh, director who turned up, you know, he didn't actually say a lot except to uh, agree to various things uh, uh, along the way, which I made them write down and so on and so on. I could see as the morning went on, uh, he, he'd not, you know, we we're in a hotel in the in the middle of Northamptonshire, and there was there was no refreshments in there, and he was a big man, and he was getting more and more hungry, and um, he he kept saying, "Well, shall we have some sandwiches now, or, or, or some some lunch or something?" And I said, "No, I think we need to concentrate on this. You know, we need to get this sorted," and. Um, Then we, we got to where we got, we got, you know, we were moving on and through dividing things up and putting in rates of inflation and all that sort of thing. uh, We got to a summer, I think it was 338 pound 60, 60 P and he he said, well, good. Right. Um, I'll, I'll get some sandwiches. So he bought his sandwiches and he got a prawn sandwich in his mouth. And I said, look, this, this, I went back from annualised amounts back to weekly amounts. I said this 338 pounds, 60. This is ridiculous. Why don't we make it 350? And he's halfway through his prawn sandwich and he, goes, pff, pff, pff. he said, pff, pff. and there's prawns flying all over the place. You've got yeah. enough. That's it, young man, yes.
1: I think that by understanding how important humour is, you actually managed to change the image and public perception of sports people in the UK. Uh, Because you were instrumental in bringing the TV show They Think It's All Over to our screens. On that show, you encouraged both Gary Lineker, if I'm right, and David Gower to take the piss out of themselves and allow the piss to be taken out of them. So how important do you think that is to the image to be a, allow the piss to be taken out yourself because you you started it really
2: well I'm not sure I said what uh, the story of think it's all over was that on and a guy phoned me and he said my name is uh, Richard addis I think his name was he said I'm a producer with uh, BBC Radio 4 and we're starting a new uh, sports quiz series which I've been put in charge of and I know nothing about sport. And I thought, yeah, that sounds right for the BBC. (laughs) And he said, I'm told by Jonathan Martin, who was then head of BBC Sport, that you know everything. So I said, well, that's very kind of him. Yes, Uh, he said, and I think Gary Lineker would be the perfect person to be on because we're doing a pilot show. And uh, so I said, well, that proves two things. uh, That Jonathan Martin knows a little bit, but you do know nothing because if you knew anything, you'd know Gary Lineker's currently in Japan playing for a Japanese side. So anyway, so he said, right, oh yes, oh dear. So can you, so I said, well, look, I've got this client. I've got David Gower, who's a client and I've got Will Carling, who's the England rugby captain client. I think they could do a, 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 a pilot radio quiz for you. Uh, and so on, so we went along, and the panel consisted of Rory Bremner, who was was teamed up on one side with Dave Gower, and Rory McGrath, who was teamed up with Will Colling, and the question master was Des Lynham, who was BBC's Mr Sport at that point, point of view, and it was done at the Paris Theatre, and I watched it, and I thought it was very funny, and I thought this could work on TV, and I'd always been interested in extending the career of a sportsman beyond 35 into broadcasting and so on, which was the, the, which was the simplest way to do it. Television, sport, McCormack, this is how to do it, grow them out of that and so on. So uh, the, about uh, three or four days later, I bumped, uh, bumped into Brian Barwie, who's head of BBC, who sang it, second head of BBC Sport, deputy head, below Jonathan Martin. Uh, three or four days later, I bumped uh, bumped into Brian who who's head of BBC, who sang it, second head of BBC Sport, deputy head, below Jonathan Martin. And I said to him, I saw a uh, a pilot of a radio programme being done the other night called They Think It's All Over. And uh, I think it could work on TV. And he said, oh, Des doesn't think it'll work on TV. And I said, mm, okay, that's Des's opinion. So we got the two of them together uh, and we did endless pilots and yes. And the first night it came out on television, I remember it going out, uh, I think it was, I think they put it on after the watershed because of the you know, nature of it and so on. And um, then at, it just finished, i just finished watching it on the television and I got a phone call from uh, at home from the editor of The Sun. Now, phone calls in those days from the editor of The Sun late at night were not normally good <laughs> news, so and I knew him, it was Stuart Higgins. And he phoned me, he said, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's fantastic. I said, what, Stuart? He said, that programme. He said, it's brilliant. And I knew then we got a hit. Uh, what it did was that you saw Gary and David learn, next to really good comedians, how to deliver a joke, how to deliver a line, how to be funny, what worked, what didn't. Like everything in broadcasting on TV, heavily edited so they could tell which jokes worked, which were, didn't, which went into the uh, broadcast programs. About, you know, an hour and a half was done, condensed down into, into half an hour. And that program had, of course, a dramatic effect for both of them in that it presented them to the public in a different way as television beyond just the original sport, how do you feel after winning the World Cup? No, you feel bloody terrible, you? you know, the stupid questions, yeah, how do you feel? Well, I'm over the moon, gov, and all that sort of thing. They could actually use that and learn how the comedians did it and so on. So it was a interesting exercise.
1: But I think, you know, I think you're hiding your light under a bushel because I think that was a seismic shift in the way um, sports people were viewed. And allowing that to happen it had to be an instinctive thing that actually they are going to be more drawn to the bosom of the public if they have humour. Of course.
2: What happens on television is, of course, the public are watching you, so they're seeing you differently. So your your public are observing, and you get the feedback. Of course, it was <laughs> uh, it was still a very enjoyable exercise.
1: No, and, uh, I think you've done all right, John, haven't you?
2: I've got away with it.
1: <laughs> what makes you laugh?
2: What makes certain comedians make me uh, make me laugh? Uh, Jimmy Chabot, who's become, become a friend, he makes me laugh. Uh, Tony Hancock made me laugh, uh, Dad's Army, sitcoms in general. I, I think what's what's sad now is that the sitcoms of that era, which were all based in terms of character, get the development of character. Uh, it was Hancock's character. Hancock wasn't actually a comedian. He was a comic actor. Maybe the geniuses were uh, Ray Galton and Alan Simpson. Um, you look at the... Uh, comedies that uh, often in partnerships, weren't they? Willis Hall and Keith Waterhouse uh, were able to write. uh, Dick Clement, Ian Lafrenet, The Likely Lads, Um, brilliant comedy, Um, came out of the characters and the development of the character so that people knew and could identify with them. And actually the interaction of people does make me laugh uh, and so on. Um uh, modern stand up, Some of it, I've, some of it, I think, very good, but it's not necessarily the material, but the way it's the way you tell them, as they say, Tommy Cooper, you know, that sort of thing. He could, uh, Bob Monkhouse had brilliant material, of course uh, and so on and got a joke for every situation and, and had this book and was as slick and witty. It's the wittiness, the response, the, it's the intelligence of some of it that, uh, that makes me laugh. Yeah.
1: You were talking uh, about one of your comedy heroes who makes you laugh Bob Monkhouse. And, uh, uh in my performing days, um, <coughs> I did a big gala show at uh, the Birmingham Hippodrome, organised by Jasper Curran. It was like a who's who of, of, of uh, comedy. Rowan Atkinson and Lenny Henry and Punt and Dennis and all of us and my old act, Morris Minor and the Majors we were on. And the person who blew everyone away that night, and remember, it was everybody was steeped in comedy, was Bob Monkhouse. He was so funny live on stage and people seem to remember him more as a game show host, but live on stage, he was naughty. He was a little bit, you know, blue, but boy, was he funny.
2: He's very funny. Um, Terry Wogan, you see, wasn't a comedian, but he was the master of of a funny line and a way to react. I remember with Wogan, he he did a speech. He was uh, chairman of the Saints and Sinners uh, Club and uh, they had a Christmas lunch. And um, every year they got a speaker along. the speaker, generally speaking, was brilliant. They had some very, very funny speakers along. And uh, he got someone over from Ireland and this bloke was absolutely terrible. He was awful. And he went on for 20 minutes, and in the end, the, the he'd lost his audience. They were almost throwing things at him, and so on. And uh, the chap I was sitting next to was my mate who'd invited me. He said to me, let's see Wogan get out of this, because this guy is his choice. And Wogan stood up, and because he stood up, he's quite a big man, Terry, he commanded presence, and it just went quiet. And he just looked at everyone and said, "Well, follow that." <laughs> <laughs> he didn't put the guy away. He just gently seemed, of course everyone uh, wet themselves, and it was very, very uh, clever uh quick wit and so on that that sort of thing makes me laugh and so on and yeah it is about that's about power over the audience a lot of it is about power and power and you're talking about negotiation which is about power and humor as a way of getting people on site some people can't do it some people can
1: why do people fail to be funny do you think that it's in the background because i know you've talked about in the past that Um, from the idea of sports people, that that team players, people who play for teams tend to be funnier than individual sports. So so what do you think it is that makes people fail to be funny?
2: Some cases it's autism, but which can in itself be funny, can't it? You know, some autistic people are quite funny. Uh, Should one laugh? I don't know. is it cruel to laugh under those circumstances? But it can certainly be uh, disarming, but it's, as we've talked about earlier, it's your relationship with the person you're talking to and uh, judging it and so on. And um, some people, you know, have a very dry sense of humour, some people have a more bawdy sense of humour, but in the end, it's about The connection between you and the person you're dealing with, getting them on your wavelength so that they actually feel more relaxed. Are you more likely to sell to someone who uh, is feeling relaxed than someone who's feeling tense? And so, well, of course you are.
1: You were talking about just now about why people fail to be funny, and it sounded like that they fail to empathise, really. that would be the key for you is to actually empathise before you could be funny.
2: Correct. I think if if the guy's not on your wavelength, can you get him on your wavelength by using a bit of humour? You you know, you're all the time, aren't you, searching when you meet someone for the first time, what can I talk about to this person uh, who he will get on my side? You notice a lot of people, often not very clever people or people who are not sure of themselves, will laugh after they make a very bland statement. What that is, I think, is an unconscious attempt to get somebody on their side. So I'm being funny. No, you're actually not being funny. It doesn't, you know, it's not. It's not getting me there. But the, it's a nervous laugh, and they unconsciously, they're trying to get the other guy to laugh with them.
1: Uh, rapport, I think, is the first thing you need before you can do humour. There, there seems to be an order of things that you 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 have to actually have got the rapport in order to, to get the person into a state whereby they are going to be relaxed enough to laugh.
2: And it's risky sometimes. I can remember uh, in my selling days, going to meet a guy who he was, a, he, I think he was a fruit and veg uh, market wholesaler uh, and so on, and walking into his office in Sheffield and it was a shambles uh, and I, I looked at him and um, I went in and, and I thought, you know, cause sometimes you do take risks. This could have gone really wrong. And I said, God, what a fucking mess. And he looked at me smiling and said, it is, you're right. (laughs) And we got on straight away. So something in me at that point could have gone really wrong. Like your bit, that's really rude, go away. But it didn't. Um, So you've got to try those things, know where you're trying them and so on. That
1: comes with charm doesn't it, really? Because actually some element of your face or your demeanor or your body language is showing people that you're teasing, you're having fun. And I I think that's a really important element whereby your face tells a different story. I mean, if you just say the words, you know, uh, this place is a shithole (laughs) with a blank look on your face, Yeah. It's going to die on its ass.
2: Well, sometimes the blank look on your face can also be effective. It, um, charm is a dangerous quality because you can work yourself into a position where if you can make people laugh, you think you can get away with almost anything. I think we have a prime minister who thinks he can get away with almost anything because people will laugh and so on. It needs to be tempered at the same time with an intelligence of where I'm going with this, you know, uh, I, I don't want to get too carried away with this. Otherwise you, you'll you get out of hand and so on. So humor, temper, it's intelligence basically, isn't it? And empathy and understanding and, there's also an element of integrity as well stuck at the back of it. Yeah.
1: Isn't it about self-editing? Because all of us who think funny or all think loads of things and then go, no, it's not the right time. No, no, no. Yes, it's the right time. And, and so, I mean, how many times have you had a gag in your head and you thought, no, it's funny, but it will be cruel at the same time. You're a, a a brilliant businessman who's brought people through the business. If I asked you, because a lot of our audience are business people, if I asked you to write a business case for humour, why it should be included in any business, what would you include in that business case?
2: Because people work better when things are fun. I think we've proved haven't we now, that a happy staff, a happy workforce, uh, if they're having fun, uh, if they're enjoying it, even if it's a fairly mundane job, they will work better. Anyway, John, we've
1: reached a point in the show uh, which we like to call quick fire questions.
2: Quick fire, quick fire questions. questions.
1: Did you like the jingle,
2: by the way? Wonderful jingle, yeah. <laughs> Have who, you tried releasing it as a single?
1: <laughs> it's, it's, a num, it's got number one written all over it. By the way, it was written by the uh, fifth member of Queen, just so you know. <laughs> it's true.
2: Is that Princess um, Anne?
1: <laughs> <laughs> see how we're going. Um, who is the funniest business person that you've met? Brian Clough. Okay, so why?
2: Quick-witted, fiercely intelligent, cabaret show at times on his own.
1: So what was it that made him? And, And is it for you, is that an indicator of absolute intelligence, the fact that he was so funny?
2: Not absolute intelligence, but a particular time kind of focused intelligence.
1: What book makes you laugh?
2: Three men in a boat made me laugh Jerome K. Jerome uh, Bertie Wooster, you know some of the lines, his satire on uh, on Britain and uh, clever observation.
1: What film makes you laugh, John?
2: I loved the great race. I like Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon in that. Uh, I thought that was very funny. Um, Anything that the Marx Brothers were in is very funny. Um, Blazing Saddles is very funny. Cat Baloo, Mel Brooks, the producers, loads and loads.
1: Brilliant answers. All of those films are are, are hilarious. And we've never had anybody who's given reeled off so many so quickly. Wonderful. Um, Let's take a shift to the other side, because it's very relevant to these times. Um, What is not funny?
2: What's going on in Russia at the moment is not funny. Uh, And Ukraine, Russia as a country is not funny. Some of what went on in America recently with Trump is not funny. The growth of totalitarianism is not funny. Authoritarian uh, leadership is not funny.
1: No, I couldn't agree more, to to be honest with you. As a son of a Hungarian refugee, it's all hitting home quite, quite severely. What word makes you laugh? Bollocks. (laughs) No, what word makes you laugh? (laughs) Um, What sound makes you laugh, John?
2: I I think a lot of, uh, you know, things going bang, uh, things going pop. I I mean, there's a lot of very, I, I mean, if you watch the, early Chaplin films, uh, there is a lot of humour in um, fairly basic, um, uh, it has to be quite sudden and unexpected, doesn't it? Sudden and unexpected things make me laugh. They're the sounds that make me laugh, I suppose, yeah. They can sometimes frighten you, but they can also make you laugh if something happens at an inappropriate moment. Farts make you laugh on occasions, don't they?
1: Or when your bollocks go bang.
2: Well, that, that that's no, t- <laughs> someone who's had a prostatectomy does not laugh about things like that.
1: <laughs> okay, I take it back. Uh, um, would you rather be considered clever or funny?
2: Uh, both, I'm greedy.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, you can have both. And finally, John, Desert Island Gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it?
2: Well, I liked Jimmy Tarbuck's joke about the honeymoon that Margaret Thatcher didn't like. I have to say, I've told that a few times in, um, uh, and there was a really inappropriate joke, which just, it did make me laugh, but it reveals me as Republican and and, um, capable of, saying things at the wrong time, so I'm not going to tell that. That's private.
1: Okay, so you're you're going to go with the Jimmy Tarbuck one?
2: I'll go with that, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, Brilliant. John, you've not only been a fascinating guest, but you've actually improved my mind and my humour. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Humorology podcast.
2: You lie with effortless ability, Paul, and good luck to you. I've enjoyed it, thanks.
1: The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth. Creative direction by Les Hughes. And additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky Production.